So, welcome to our next podcast. We're going to be talking about Kubernetes. And I've got here with me Steve Gilroy and Andrew Hello. Palmer. Hi. Two uh, engineers. Um, we've all been involved in all sorts of different production deployments and release method, methods and stuff like that. Um, and we're going to end up talking about Kubernetes, but we're going to start out talking a bit about how we normally release things to production, how that works, um, and how that's changed over the last 10 or 15 years. So, back in the dawn of time, we would do releases by logging into servers with our fingers, well not really with our fingers, but with our keyboards, and making changes to the servers. Then we call that release by mutation. Now, uh, oh, well we still do that for a couple of services still, and it's always a pain, I find anyway, that you know, some bit of configuration isn't working and don't do it all from scratch. That's and, right. I think the thing, I, the thing I most find is just when you come, you log into that server and you're on the command, how confident are you that that's going to do that's the right. thing you wanted to do? And even, so if you, even if you've got a server that's a staging box that's supposed to be identical, you're not mm. always certain it's identical because they, they can't be completely identical, can they? Yep, it's quite likely. But. Yeah, and, and of course the system itself, you, you, know, you manage change on them quite carefully, but you can never be 100% certain what state it's in compared to what state it ought to be in. Um, so... And the way that we're doing things now generally is something we're calling frozen pizza, which is a bit of a funny name for it. But the idea being that when you get your pizza out of the freezer, um, it's already got all its toppings on. There's already a complete server there. It's just frozen. All you have to do is stick it in the oven and then you have your working server. Um, so we started out doing that using AMIs, Amazon Machine Images, for distribution directly to Amazon boxes. And Steve, you did quite a bit of that, didn't you? It involves doing the same mutating the the server but just once in advance so you still have an operating system uh, to set up but not not to the same degree because usually you have uh, pre-built images that Amazon provide you with with have all of the base stuff you need for the operating system but you still have to install all of the usual services on top of that um, which requires the same kind of tooling that you would need to do that directly on a server. Uh, and you have all of the same dependency issues. You need to have all of that running on a particular version of an OS. You have to, to test with that version. So we've used different configuration tools in the past and we ended up rolling our own specifically to build AMI images. But they're, uh, they're still kind of problematic. I mean, it seems a bit... It's one of those things where things have changed over time. I know 20 years ago, if you'd said you could just build an operating system image and deploy it to a brand new computer in, you know, in only 20 minutes, I'd mm. have been amazed. But now 20 minutes is quite slow. Every time you need to do a build, you have to wait for the build and then wait for the... Yeah, well, that's it. You have to wait for all of the things to actually install as if you were installing it on a live server. Uh, and then you have to install all of your application packages on top of that and it's also it's not like that just is a free win because you've already compared to all of our old uh, deployment by mutation things um you're like you you can't have anything stateful on that on an ami an ami right. in, if we're living in that world you have to yeah. reconfigure how your how everything's working it has to be essentially a throwawayable thing yeah absolutely and, it, and there's sort of two classes of state you end up with on these systems um, you design the systems to be stateless in terms of your application data mm -hmm. but you still have 
um, instance specific things like its IP address and those sorts of things, right? And you have secrets, which are things you can't just bake into the image. And there's always some secrets, even if it's just your password or something. And those things need to be injected after launch. So we've made it more complicated than a boring old piece of yep. tin. Um, but the AMI images are pretty big, aren't they? They're hundreds of megs. Um, and the build can take really quite a long time. And one of the things we found is that the builds take longer than a lot of continuous integration systems will support. So you want to run the CI so that you can automatically test every image you build, but they crap out before it's finished building the image because it takes such a long time, which is kind of annoying. Yeah, and especially when you're at the, the prototyping stage, you, when you're debugging the actual configuration and setup, you, you have to wait for it to fail. Yeah, 10, 15 minutes in, and realize, oh, I had that one line on. Yes, I, yeah, absolutely. It. It's a typo. And then I got another typo in the same line. And I've just spent 45 minutes waiting to fix two typos. Super painful. Really, really annoying. Really, really annoying. But um, that's I mean, it. It was still, it's still better than, than yeah. mutation. And in particular, one of the things it supports is auto-scaling, which um, it's one of those things where getting the frozen pizza stuff working is kind of a, uh, a, you know, an enabling technology for that. Because otherwise, if you want to auto-scale, you set up a new computer and you then need to bring it up to the state that all of the other machines are in your auto-scaling group, which, if you're mutating, means you need to magically change them. I mean, presumably people did do that, but... I still mean, do. Still do. If you look at Opsworks, AWS Opsworks, that uses Puppet. Um, that how, that's how it works. Yeah, there you go, it's Puppet under the... When you do your pro exam, you'll nice have to day. do Opsworks. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, yeah, so, so, and of course it can be, you know, Puppet can be pretty quick, depending on the changes you're making, mm. but... Um, but it's, it still feels pretty clunky, doesn't it? Presumably you can really easily trip yourself up if you accidentally leave a surprise thing that might be slow in your... Well, yeah, your auto-scale might take you 20 minutes to, yeah. to scale, yeah. which is Bad not times. fast enough. And even on systems where you're not scaling, generally you may have more than one server. And for redundancy in AWS, you probably almost certainly have more than one server because yeah. you'll have... One You'd be mad in, not to actually <laughs> in uh, both availability zones, yeah. and there's the being able to have the exact same image in the staging environment. Yep, as your production. Absolutely, and there's another great thing about frozen pizza is when you promote the images, you know that what you're running in production really is literally bit for bit exactly the same as in stage, yeah. which gets rid of all the staging issues that you know because stage is always a bit different from prod. Okay, so to improve on that, we've got a thing called Docker. Um, which allows you to build sort of mini packages of a bit of a computer, I suppose, is a way of putting yeah. it. It allows you really to run a process in isolation with all of its dependencies. So it's sort of like building an AMI, a computer image, but without a computer in it. So it's just got your code. Um, and Docker has a quite a long and storied history. And it's kind of interesting, really, because uh, back in 2002, Linux gained support for namespaces. And then in 2006, Google released something called Process Containers. Um, and in 2008, it was merged into mainline Linux as something called C Groups. So that's long ago as that. that yeah, 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 yeah. Um, it really is properly, properly so old. Was that yeah. before or after LXC, LXD? So this is what LXC is, is based on. Yeah, it yeah. is C Groups. Under the, under the hood, it's C Groups. And what the control groups allows you to do is group together a whole set of resources on, the, on a machine and make them partitioned from the rest of the machine so that the processes in the control group can't see processes in other control groups. Um, so you, so it's as if it's um, a whole new sort of little separate machine. Now, then it turned out... 
back in 2015 when Google released the details of how they did a Google, how they could run this massive large-scale organization. Um, but they were using containers like Docker and have been doing them in production for 15 years, since 2000, since before even uh, namespaces for Mount came into Linux. And the, and the stuff they released under C groups, they'd already been running in production for six years um, to run Very Google. So they'd had their own like secret source version. That's it. And it was all super, super duper secret. And it, there'd been rumours of this thing they called Borg for many years, obviously, because people had left. Google and kind of wave their hands about it a bit, but people stuck to their yeah. NDAs. So Docker is a, a kind of a branded version of the same thing. There's a few alternatives. There's something called Rocket, but really Docker is a way of using these underlying operating system facilities to produce containers, and then Docker gives you tooling over the top to download images yeah, so and so upload them. So you've got the, the tooling in the command line yeah. support. Yeah. So what, what lineage does it share? Like, does that come like directly from? The Google stuff, or just kind of no. So, so Docker was independently developed right. on top of operating system features that were contributed to Linux by Google. Okay, so not directly, but not sort directly, of. sort of. Okay. Yeah, they all had a good chat at one point. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> all the people involved definitely had some meetings. <laughs> um, and Docker's been a really nice. They've done a nice job with the tooling. I think mm. it feels feels good. It's very quick. It's really reliable. It's very straightforward to install. I have yet to have it explode on me, which is pretty remarkable given what, yeah. it, what it does. It's pretty solid. Now, Docker has the potential to be deployed into production, but in a minute I'll talk about the challenges for that and how they've been addressed. But we've been using Docker for much longer in development because it provides a really easy way of having sort of separate projects that have differing dependencies, which is the problem here where we have so many different mad projects on the wall of which can step on each other's toes. So, Andrew, you've been doing quite a lot of Docker yeah. and Dev, haven't you? Yeah, so I think if you just have a web server and a database and that's all you have, you maybe get away with just installing stuff straight onto your machine and it's all okay, maybe. Um, but as soon as you end up with things like maybe you want Elasticsearch, maybe you want strange versions of a database, that kind of thing, and you've got maybe multiple things, like you've got, you need two database servers, doesn't seem like a crazy requirement for your project. And Docker makes this incredibly trivial compared to doing it if you want to actually install it natively. Um, and it just gives you lovely consistency between you and your colleagues. It means that you don't get this horrible thing where one of you's working on Ubuntu and one of you's working on Mac, and then you all suddenly trip over when you try and install the same new dependency on. We had we had horrible trouble when people started wanting to develop on Macs, which these days is pretty common. You go to a developer conference and half the people there have got Macs. But what what yeah. what's it's been common for a while? We've just been a bit angry yeah. at you. <laughs> and also, I'm very old, so I remember when that wasn't the case. But certainly to start with, it, it took quite a lot of effort to. You know, we had build instructions for every project. We had build instructions for Linux, and then build instructions for a Mac, and then it was always really fiddly. And every time we added a funny dependency, you'd have somebody would have to figure out how to do it on each platform. Whereas Docker kind of isolates all of those things. Yeah. And I, I think it's helpful as well when you've got members of a development team who are have different skill sets when it comes to system administration. Yeah. Um, so the last big project we had where after. Our front-end developers uh, were having to wrangle with a Vagrant to start up their virtual machines uh, to give them an environment in which they could run their front-end code to test that it worked without really understanding everything that was going on there. Mm -hmm. Not that they should necessarily, um, but it was still work 
system admin work that they had to do to set up these virtual machines, yeah. which is exactly what they don't want to do as front end devs. Whereas now, um, I recently converted a, a project that did have some insane uh, requirements. Uh, so it was Java plus JavaScript um, plus Redis plus any, any other number of things. Uh, and I gave our front end dev a Docker file and a Docker Compose, and within two commands they had an environment up and running with Tesla. And it's really nice when you have a team where everyone's using the same toolchain, because the problem with the front-end devs having Vagrant and everybody else just using their straight desktops is that the front-end devs become second-class citizens. Yeah. You know what I mean? They're the ones who need the support from everyone else, but we, we make a change. It's a breaking change to Vagrant environment. We never notice because we're not using it. This way, everybody has a responsibility to maintain the toolchain. Yeah. And also, further, it means that all of that is it lives in code rather than in previous things where we've just had... There's a big readme that has a chunk yeah. that's all about installing. and It's a big readme that's probably lies yeah. because it's out of date. Like, this was true tested on Ubuntu Trusty or whenever yeah. ago and you know yeah, and yeah I found that the, it's always slightly different for each project in a way that required you to understand the way Vagrant worked and your OS worked more than you do with Docker where it's more what is the actual difference between the components in these projects rather than how do I set up the virtual networking this yeah. time for <laughs> this particular set of things? I think with things like Compose, they obviously had a really good understanding of what problem it was that they were trying to solve or making sure that that was an easy thing to do, whereas I think something like Vagrant, maybe my Vagrant Foo is just a bit lacking, but having tried to do similar things with Vagrant, it just felt like I was fighting it a lot more. Yeah. Yeah, well, you always got with Vagrant, you've got the problem that you would then have two operating systems that you're <laughs> battling with. There's a bit of a sort of a thing there where you go like, you know, I had a problem with my operating system, so I chose another operating system on top, and now yep. I've got two problems. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, whereas that, that Docker, you kind of feel like you've got none. And it's interesting with the operating system thing that we've, we've been deploying on Ubuntu now for many years, um, but we have a general issue with some people, with different developers running different versions. There's no real solution to that we've tried making everybody run the same version and then everybody's running an old version and then one day you upgrade and then everyone's running a new version and half your projects don't work at one time or the other i mean i have the, the the problem where at one point i was supporting projects on lucid so that's 12.04 but 16 1404 Ubuntu yeah. and 1604 yeah. Ubuntu. So what do I run on my desktop? No, well, and which virtual Whatever you run is going to be the wrong thing, yeah. right? And you're really disparate um, versions of uh, all the de common dependencies as well. And some of them don't matter quite so much. Like Postgres is, has been quite stable, actually. It's a bit well, pleasingly you say that. I've recently ran into a problem with that to do with its JSON B, I think. Oh, okay. Support. Yep, that's, that's changed. That's that changed. That's one changed. One of the things that changed. JSON B's changed. Yeah, that's true. I did have a thing where I was having to install different versions of Elasticsearch, uninstall, reinstall, yeah. and I think some Redis connector as well, yeah. for the two projects I was working yeah. on. And Elasticsearch has changed dramatically yeah. over the last few years, yeah. um, and, and often you'll find that the operating systems don't really support running parallel versions, so you end up having to have a lot of hacks, and then oh, it's a real pain. So Docker has addressed that. Um, but one of the other things that's interesting about it is that when your containers don't really contain much operating system, you can then base them on different images. So instead of deploying in production to Ubuntu, we can choose other operating systems, and actually it still works. Um, and one of the interesting things about that is there's an operating system called Alpine, 
which is specifically designed for building Docker images and for being as small as possible. Because inside the images, you don't need to run any operating system services. You don't run a cron, you don't run any log rotation, you don't run syslog, even you run nothing. So you can end up with these really, really small containers. And um, Alpine, I've really enjoyed using these last couple of months. I think I'm probably going to move everything inside containers to Alpine. Yeah, and I've used it quite a bit in using containers to run one-off tasks yeah. that I don't want to configure again yeah. on a new operating yeah. system. Uh, most recently for running some JavaScript build processes and yeah, specifically choosing the Alpine version of the Docker image because... It's half the size, isn't it? At yeah, least. It's smaller, it starts up faster, it downloads... And it just means you've just got less, just yes. less stuff, less nice surface stuff. area Absolutely. to just, I mean, regardless from a, we usually say surface area in a security sense, but it's just less stuff to care about. Like, yeah. I just, I literally just want this to do this one single thing, yeah. give me no So the, there's something about having a container that has all of the dependencies you need for the particular admin task you do and nothing else. Nothing else. So yeah. you never need to you know worry about. You going to conflict, yeah. you know, you're not yep. going to end up with crossed wires about Absolutely. what's what. You know what you're getting. So, so these containers are uh, really, really interesting, and it's quite a new um, kind of concept where the container draws the line. And so much of um, computer science or engineering is just drawing lines in different places. You know, this is that, and this thing isn't. But it's moved where the line is. It's allowed you to package a program with its dependencies in a in a kind of controlled way. And using them in production has been something of a, a goal for quite a lot of people in. Um, in the ops world because of these advantages but all the container does is gives you a way of running a program it doesn't sort out your network for you it doesn't sort out disk mounts and volumes it doesn't do configuration dependency injection um, starting and stopping and scaling and monitoring and logging and reporting and the 101 things you need to do to something before you can operate it and that's where uh, Kubernetes comes in so this is based on um, the Borg code, I don't, I don't think it shares any code, but it shares a lot of developers. <laughs> so the core, <laughs> the core Kubernetes team all come from Google, um, and uh, Kubernetes has been adopted by um, Azure and Google as their kind of production container platform, and um, there are rumours that Amazon might also be adopting it quite soon. And it would be very surprising if they didn't. <laughs> it would, at this point, yeah, it's been really becoming quite industry standard. So so we started working with uh, Kubernetes a few months ago, and we now have two production clusters, one for ourselves and, and one for one of our customers. And it's been a really quite, uh, quite a pleasant experience, which is not something people often say about putting things into operations. But I've been really, really, really impressed with it as a product. Um, we've been deployed to Amazon. Um, running on EC2, so it can be a, it's highly resilient. This is one of the things that I found most remarkable, is you can upgrade your cluster to by typing a single command, and it does it without anything going down, which is pretty amazing. I'm still a bit scared to do it during operating hours, but it has worked. <laughs> You're sure it has done a thing? It's, it's literally done it. No, you, no, it isn't a no off. It really <laughs> does. It, um, cause it, 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 because of the way that it works, you, you run a cluster of underlying hosts in Amazon EC2, um, they run the Kubernetes software and the containers are run within Kubernetes. So when you go to do an upgrade, um, it takes all the traffic away from one of the servers, launches the containers on the other server so everything's in service. It then kills one of the, that server in the cluster and when it comes back up, it's running a new version. Then once it's all up and running, which takes, takes about 10 minutes, it bleeds all the containers over, 
Um, it does what's called cordoning, which d- d- shuts one of them down, and um, and then restarts that one. And it just cycles through restarting the nodes and the master. Such a lot of magic, aren't it? It is a lot of magic. So it is magic. very, very magic. We've used similar tools to uh, orchestrate instances themselves yeah. uh, in the past, but that's been a much slower process, and you end up having to increase your scaling group, wait for the new instance that's to come right, up. Yeah. And then wait for the instance, but whereas when you're waiting for Docker instances to launch, it's seconds, yeah. less than seconds. Um, especially when Amazon was uh, and per hour billing on your instance. It got really expensive to do that a lot, which you do a lot doing testing. So, so one of the interesting things about running this, someone like Amazon, is, um, is in some ways we've sort of uh, dodged the hardest problems. We put all the state on backing services provided by Amazon. So we run RDS, the relational database service for the database. We use uh, Elasticash for the cache. We put blobs on S3. And state is always the hardest thing to manage in operational sense because it's where all the real value is. It's where your data is. Um, and you can't just go around changing it a lot because it breaks really easily. Um, so what we're currently running is these stateless Kubernetes clusters um, that then talk to backing services within Amazon. Um, but I see that actually as a, as a long-term pattern you know I can see for the next 10 years this being a really standard way to deploy um, it's got a couple of advantages other than the things that it, like it releases really really beautifully quickly I mean I can li- literally release a new version of a piece of software in under 200 milliseconds which is a really nice amount of time <laughs> so impressive it is it's great it really really is nice you just go like upgrade and go boff it's done um, and of course that also means that you know, I can roll back in 200 milliseconds as well which is really nice um, the only, it just slows down sometimes when a node has to download the new image um, which is kind of annoying but you can pre-cache them oh, I've not tried it there are there are a few pain points it supports auto-scaling but auto-scaling it turns out is a really hard problem when you're running multiple services on a on multiple underlying nodes because the, um, the scheduling, the allocation of a workload to a node in an auto-scaling environment, what you're trying to do with auto-scaling is, is, is um, accommodate future load, right? Or at least accommodate load now that's different from load in the past, right? So you're in a variable load situation. Um, so you might spin up a new system, allocate workload to it. Meanwhile, one of your other workloads is going down in terms of load. So those are bled off some of your other nodes. You could potentially end up with too many nodes with services scattered randomly across them, if you, if you see what I mean. Yeah. I'm not sure I explain that to you. It's actually, it's a really difficult problem allocating the workloads to the servers to try and hit some kind of goal. So the current system is, is it works okay, but it needs a little bit of, you know, massage. Does it do anything clever, or I presume it doesn't by default, but you can make it do things where it learns from looking at previous workloads, how that's like? None, that, none of that's in there yet. So, so there's two, two parts to it. Um, one of them is the cluster autoscaler, and one of them is what's called the horizontal pod autoscaler, the HPA. And you can attach horizontal pod autoscaling rules to what's called a deployment, which will look at um, how resource is being used compared to a baseline. Um, and add additional containers as uh, as you need to, um, and then that so that works within the existing resources of your cluster that just allocates more CPU and RAM yep. to a workload. Um, and then there's a thing called a cluster autoscaler, which regularly looks to see are there any containers that are unscheduled that can't run 
because they don't have enough resource, right? So it keeps adding containers, and eventually you run out of room, and they sit there in this unscheduled state, waiting to go live. The cluster autoscaler goes, ah, oh, there are unscheduled containers. I'll start a new node, right? So, so I guess some of that is knowing what limits to set for the services in the HPA versus Absolutely right. do I just scale it out across more instances? It's really, so, so the way that the, the horizontal port autoscaler works is you, um, you have to say for your workload what memory you, you expect it to consume, what you're requesting for it, and what, how much CPU you're requesting in millicores, in <laughs> thousandths of a core. What does that mean when you've got varying types of... So on Amazon, EC2 instances with different numbers of virtual cores, which may be yeah, so, so, so they just define a millicore as a thousandth of a standard core, and then a standard. <laughs> yes, I know, I know, I know. And then a standard core in quotes. I'm making air quotes here. Is um, is as an AWS core or a, um, an, a, a you know an Azure whatever they call them now, I can't remember. Um, but they're all sort of equivalent. I mean, one of the funny things is CPU technology has has kind of founded a bit over the last. Five or five or eight years or something. They haven't really improved massively. You get they could kind of clock them up a bit, uh, but they've mostly added additional cores rather than made each core faster. So, so in some yeah. ways, this. I mean, the problem I've had with that is the more cores you add, the less you can yeah. increase the clock speed for each yeah. one. So it it makes it even less of a absolutely. Um, but for a rough, but to be honest. That's not even the biggest problem. The biggest problem is I, you know, I get a workload, I kind of get a look at it, I run it on the bench and kind of poke it a bit and then go, right, how much CPU does this need? Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> so far, I'm using a very, very advanced technique called guessing. Um, yes. How's that been working it, out for it, you? It's been, it's been okay. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's an interesting thing. Previously, we've identified, say, memory-intensive workloads versus yes. CPU-intensive workloads. Yeah. And then you spin up EC2 instances that are tweaked in one way or another to match... Yeah those workload types. Yep. Now, when you dockerize those workloads, so you've got heterogeneous workloads right. running in different Docker uh, images on the same instance, which instance do you choose? So How do you optimize it? Of course, one of the things is that the, the, the heterogeneity is ideally is an advantage. Right. So what we're doing is rather than deploying more resource than we need and having lots of overhead, you instead use autoscaling to uh, minimise the amount of spare capacity, which means you're only paying for what you need, right? So you're not you're not having overprovision on your CPU just because you need the memory, which I've seen on servers yeah, all, I was looking at today. All the, the time, all the time. The, yeah. we, the particular instance we chose was needed for the memory requirements, but yeah. I was looking at the it's CPU like load and percent or something. Yeah, you can get over four percent in yeah. a month, so. yeah. and that's really common. I find that when I do reviews of other people's infrastructure, that often. There's enormous amounts of, of, of overhead on one side or the other. So this enables you to, to make use of that. So currently I'm using the T2 burstable instances um, because these are synchronous web workloads that feels quite appropriate anyway. Um, a lot of the things that we build, they are memory bound up until the point at which they have the RAM. At that point they become CPU bound. So what I'm doing is um, run them. I run them under load on the desktop, have a look, see how much RAM they consume. I, Add, add a bit, <laughs> and that's the rabble of it, right? Um, and then I'm very roughly, um, so these are Python workloads, I'm going for one process and two threads in each container, which feels like about the right trade-off, and then saying that I think that's about a quarter of a core. 
approximately. Yeah. Yeah, again, that's guessing yeah. for you. <laughs> <laughs> nice. But so far, having watched that in production, it feels it feels quite good. I mean, I guess the the proof of it will be like how well does that optimize your your resources? How yeah. well does that? Yeah. You know? And of course, that's one of the things you, you just run that over time, and you just need to make sure you've got the observability in your platform Absolutely. so you can. And how much studying actually goes on in a typical? Epistasis Gunicom or yeah. the equivalent. Yeah. So so it's able to um, it's able to service threads in to multi thread when you're in Python land, right? Um, so what that means in particular is when it's blocking in Python it's able to service the ad- additional threads. Now that in reality that's not that much of the time. They tread on each other's toes a lot. Because in C land the locks aren't there, right? I'm not explaining this very well. But basically Python's got a problem with this global lock which limits the way that it's able to multi thread. So you scale through multiple processes. I mean that's what yeah, generally the yeah. way I would have imagined it is that you'd have multiple processes work processes yeah, right. rather than threading but, but a single process. So there's a great advantage to the threads where they can share memory. Yeah. So so there's a there's there's a trade off to make. And those two, th- generally two threads in one process, you'll be able to get. You know, it won't scan entirely linearly. It'll be like 1.8 times faster. But you save yourself a few hundred meg of RAM. So when you are looking on a heterogeneous set of processes running on these nodes, actually that gives you an overall more efficient mix in terms of cost, which is ultimately what you're trying to do. You're trying to spend the minimum dollars to deliver the maximum throughput, right? Um, so it's feeling okay right now. But what's fascinating, of course, is that we're able to have this conversation. But how do I manage this at a level that previously you just didn't? Do you know what I mean? And like 10 years ago, I'd just go out and buy the biggest computer the customer could afford on the grounds that that would yeah. cause us the least grief. Um, least likely to get jouted out down the ex- line. Exactly. Yeah. And then you go to Amazon and um, you're able to make more granular choices and you're able to change yeah. it over time. Yeah. So you can say. And you need to. Yeah, you, do, you totally do. Yeah. Because it's, it's so easy to. Uh, if you have the same mentality of. Oh, I'll give myself overhead. Yeah, you, you end up overhead. spending lots of That's instances right. that you don't need and you're getting yeah. charged. So you're now in a position that you, where Amazon would say you should under-provision and then keep a close eye on it. But with everything running in a cluster, we say we just literally, we minimally provision and then allow auto-scaling to find the right like watermark, water level. Mm-hmm. Yeah? Um, and then at the point at which you've got a watermark sort of thing, over a month or so, you see where you generally fit, you can then reserve the instances for yeah, the long term to minimise your cost. It's just to guess, so you, you say you're a startup and you've got, you suddenly become popular, mm. you, you, you get hit with a big bill with you become popular, yeah. but at least your website doesn't just fall over. Yes. Yeah, which makes you less popular. Mm. And if you're a startup, your goal is to become popular. So yeah. <laughs> just falling over a lot doesn't help. Yeah. There are um, there are obviously more complicated things to do with running a cluster. There's lots of things that once upon a time we didn't have to think about much, like logging, which just sort of happens and it just sort of fills your hard disk up and then occasionally you're going to have to delete small logs maybe. Um, whereas actually, because these are entirely stateless things, and you don't even run a, a logger inside the containers, you suddenly have to really think about logging. Where are you going to store your logs? How do you ship them there? Um, so we're using Amazon's CloudWatch for that, but there's a few other services, PaperTrail, Ugly, a couple of others. They all seem to work a bit differently from each other, annoyingly. Um, I'm not quite sure. I don't like any of them, actually, but they work. Which is surprising. It doesn't feel like it can. Doesn't feel like it's a thing that should come with opinions. Oh, but the problem is, you've got so much history. So they all, as a baseline, want to try and support Syslog, mm-hmm. which obviously is now like a millennia, millennia yes. old, was it 1975 <laughs> or something, Syslog. Um, but then you've got application locking. So you've then got to support every language under the sun to ship well, arbitrary log 
structures from every possible application. So with those constraints, you end up with a paper trail has it's really hard to make it secure. And they, yeah, they, they, yeah. their opinion is you don't need to be secure with your logs. Who cares about logs anyway? Which is a funny position for someone who runs a service <laughs> yeah. literally collecting your logs. <laughs> yeah, and instead, because it's logging as a service, the, the logs live somewhere that isn't... I guess I don't the machine. If you're happy to ship your logs off to someone yeah. else's servers, they mm. can't be that uh, precious. And yeah. when we first started using CloudWatch, the the tools that Amazon had for finding anything in the logs oh. were absolutely dreadful. They really were poor. Didn't even combine the, the streams of your different. No, they, they just expected you to write your own tooling. You, the only way of identifying a particular thing happening on a certain date was to know exactly the time frame it happened on exactly the instance mm. you were yeah. looking for. There was obviously just in the CloudWatch um, like tracker a big to-do that just said tooling and yeah. they just haven't got but they, to they, it They've yet. done a little bit now. Yeah. The search interface is, is usable. Yeah. It didn't use, it <laughs> it's didn't use it's it. not impossible to find the thing that you right. Though I have enjoyed using Sentry recently. Sentry's great. It isn't quite the same thing, Sentry's but fantastic. You know, fantastic. It, it allows you to pick out the, the 500 errors. As an application developer, it's a yes. godsend. It is yeah. vital to yeah. have at least something that does, that carries that. And they've put some real work into integration. It integrates really nicely with Jira and the other kind of common tools that you might deploy. Yep. Yeah, it's really nice. Um, so uh, the final thing, just very briefly, uh, is to compare Kubernetes to serverless because they both sort of share sort of aspects in that they are the idea is you kind of you want to run your code without an operating system. Um, and you but, want to be super stateless. Yeah, and absolutely. Kind of and, same and of course, it, if you come from, um, there's a guy called Kelsey uh, Hightower who um, who does a lot of Kubernetes stuff. Who's been writing recently about um, about serverless, which has been quite amusing. I'll come back to that in a second. But I've seen people from the serverless community looking at Kubernetes and going, "Well, this just seems really weird. Why would you group a gr- you know, set of functions together to run them in a single?" Workload. And it's been like, wow, <laughs> the world has changed so much. <laughs> we used to call that an application. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, but Kelsey Hightower, uh, going the opposite way around, it's a bit like, well, you know, why would you uh, choose to make your application more complicated by chopping it up? And of course, with so many of these things, really, it's the economics. It's you know, do you want to you, you know by packaging things together? you are able to purchase the resource in advance, which then means that you can have, deliver guaranteed latencies if you need to, um, but also you can isolate state. Yes, I mean, in, inter-process communication yeah. is a deal. Uh, the, my experience of serverless was taking a big process that was previously taking a long time to run on a big data set on a single server and trying to package it yeah, in a way that you could parallelize it in a serverless yeah. environment. And the sticking point was the passing of state between the components and the, the managing of accessing common state resources like databases and search yeah, index. And that was, it was hard. It's frustrating now because we look back at that project. Um, and I'm hoping when the next piece of big big piece of work on that project happens, we're going to be able to move it to a Kubernetes cluster because actually it's perfect for it, isn't it? That if instead of writing Lambda functions, you had just been writing jobs in Kubernetes, it would have nailed that problem. Yeah, I mean, the, and so the, the disadvantages of serverless, and maybe it's just the, the Amazon's particular implementation of it, is that 
rather than being able to deploy a container with the minimum thing of whatever you want. It was, here's the things we support, make your code work on them. Make it Here are the very definite constraints you have, uh, so you can only run it for five minutes maximum. So you, you, you had to chop it up into more bits than I would have liked just to meet that constraint. Mm. Uh, and then they were very constrained on the amount of memory. Okay, it's, it could, the heterogeneity again, yes. the, the, the way they tied the memory to the CPU and the way they allocated the, the little slice of time you got for your serverless for that particular application it was, was just very, very constraining. Yeah, it was, it was a great fit for the task in the end. Yeah. Um, but of course, the challenge was how else would we have been able to do it? Now we would totally do it on Kubernetes, I think. Yeah. I mean, it, it was an order of magnitude savings in end to end time of the task running. And then, um, presumably, like, the different workloads are going to fall either side, like, in terms yes. of economics, at yep. least. Just, it's going to really depend on your workload. I yep. mean, is there a, a, like, really obvious decider as to which side of that it falls? I mean, I guess there are going to be a few flags that push it one way or the other, but... So, so oh, God, it's difficult, isn't it? Are we back so, to guessing again? So, so it's, it's challenging because you have... Uh, so, you're, so you've got a Kubernetes cluster already, right? So you, you've got somewhere you could run these jobs. Then you have Amazon Lambda available, AWS Lambda, so you could go and run functions just over there in Lambda, right? But then in addition to that, you get packages now where you can run functions as a service on top of your Kubernetes cluster. So you can get some of the, the sort of the model of Lambda, but d deliver that through the yeah. compute you've but already and purchased. What I found was the, the boundaries I had to draw between the parts of my code weren't aligned with the natural here's a set of packages and dependencies mm. that go together I'll yeah. just make that into a docker container it was yeah. driven by the constraints of the yeah. execution environment yeah. as much as uh, the, the dependency yeah. environment so, so I think you, if you're going to build for uh, serverless you probably do it from scratch you design for that. You probably aren't going to be using anything where you, where synchronous latency is crucial in your backing services, right? So you're not going to have an RDBMS, right? You use a NoSQL database. You're probably doing quite a lot with S3. You're probably designing it in a microservices way. So um, yeah, and re-execution of tasks is a, a thing as well. I'm keeping track of uh, of failures. That's You've right. got to build everything so it's item important. That's it. So 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 lots of SQS, data queues, all of those sorts of things. Trying to retrofit that does yeah. seem. It, that, that's really difficult. You're basically ground up. Whereas whereas what Kubernetes gives you an opportunity to do is to use existing application design approaches or whatever, um, and kind of replatform them into something that's more cloud native, but without throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Yeah. Um, because lots of stuff like relational databases, for all that everybody hates on them, they are great for the things they're really good at. The things they're really good at. Like, you know, 80% of business problems a relational database is a really, really useful tool, even for all the fact that they don't scale and, you know, they're a ball like to manage and back up and they fall over and all that other stuff. They are really, really good at those problems. Um, and then, but the connection times, the, the connection setup times are quite high. Mm. So you kind of want to hold connection pools. You want to hold some state when you're working with databases, um, and so they don't suit serverless particularly well. Um, so it's kind of a, it feels to me like Kubernetes containers are sort of a halfway house between the two extremes, but one that is actually operable. Like I'm going to quite like, like the wrong word. Um, it, it doesn't fill me with fear to operate them. <laughs>